What's up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I had the immense pleasure of sitting down with Matt Alborg again for the second time uh, to dive into some of the, his research around Bitcoin usage in Latin America, particularly Venezuela and Argentina, how uh, individuals in both countries are using Bitcoin differently, why they're using it, and uh, how dollars play a role in all of that on top of that. We touched a little bit about uh, Bitcoin usage in Kenya and India towards the end. I think you guys are really going to like this podcast. Uh, Matt is doing incredible work, uh, actually doing investigative journalism to, to see how people in countries that are typically underserved from a monetary perspective are actually using Bitcoin. Bitcoiners like to uh, believe that these people, these people, I'm sorry for that, uh, individuals within these countries uh, are using Bitcoin. Uh, it's been surmised for quite some time. Matt is proving that, uh, yes, people are using Bitcoin, maybe not for the reasons that you think they would be, but they are using it nonetheless. Uh, and it's a growing uh, usage across Latin America and uh, in other countries around the world. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by our good friends at the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them. Uh, they're helping you stack sats, they're helping you send sats, they're helping you receive sats, they're helping you sell sats if you so please. If you want to dump your sats, you can do it at the Cash App. Don't recommend it, but it's possible. Sats are the standard on the Cash App. I just noticed they upped the weekly, uh, the amount of sats you can buy monthly, excuse me, on the on the Cash App from $10,000 to $100,000 worth of sats. So if you're a big baller and you want to buy in bulk on the Cash App, you can do that now. Uh, be cognizant of the withdrawal limits you don't want to have too much stuck on there at one time if you want to take possession of your keys so just be cognizant of that on top of that uh satsura standard already mentioned that and they have dca now they're rolling out a dollar cost average function if you just want to set it and forget it your your stack your sat stacking you can do that now via the cash app too on top of that they have cash app investing which allows you to invest in slivers of stonks if your favorite stonk is a little too expensive and you don't want to dole out all all the cash to buy a whole stock and buy as little as one dollar worth of that stock and because cash app is directly connected to your bank account or if it is your bank account you can start investing today there is no four to five day waiting period cash app investing is a subsidiary of square member sipc and as always as always use the code stacking sats if you download the app if you haven't downloaded the app and you are going to download it when you do download it make sure you use the code stacking sats you're going to get ten dollars and ten dollars is going to go to our good friends at owls lacrosse that's owls lacrosse enjoy this episode with matt Always a fascinating conversation. He's doing some great work. And go support him at usefultulips.org. Cheers. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a Wednesday morning. Very excited for this interview. A very timely interview considering the, uh, the content. Uh, that we're about to talk about and when it was dropped i am sitting down with somebody who's been on the podcast already and somebody's doing incredible work i'm very excited to catch up with him and talk about the most recent articles he's written on bitcoin in latin america i'd like to reintroduce you freaks to matt alborg matt what's going on hey how's it going hey everybody Going good, man. Going good. Like I said, I'm uh, very happy we were able to lock this down on such short notice. You dropped your article on Argentina, I believe, Monday of this week, uh, maybe Sunday. Um, and yeah, this, I mean, the stuff that you're writing about is extremely interesting and very important, I think, specifically when it, it pertains to Bitcoin, how Bitcoin's actually being used in parts of the world where people think it should be used. Um, so your last two articles you wrote, last month on March 24th about 
Venezuela and how the rolling blackouts that it experienced last year affected local Bitcoin's markets, not only in Venezuela, but across Latin America and across the world, even outside of Latin America. And then again, your, your most recent article was on Argentina and sort of the, the, uh, the, uh, legal markets for us dollars, the blue markets for us dollars and the capital controls that that country has experienced throughout the years and, and how Bitcoin sort of plays a role there. They're a bit different. And you asked, uh, the question in your most recent article, will Argentina be the next Venezuela? Um, so I think let's start with Venezuela and what you found out or, or the data that you sort of pulled, uh, from local Bitcoins after the rolling blackouts that happened last year. Sure. Um, yeah, that was, that was a good introduction. Um, so yes, there, there were, uh, massive blackouts last March. I believe they started on March 7th of 2019, uh, inside Venezuela. The vast majority of the power in Venezuela comes from, uh, a single hydroelectric plant. Um, and, uh, due to poor maintenance, uh, there was a fire uh, near it, um, and it basically shut off power for the vast majority of the country. Um, there was a lot of blame on a bunch of sides for what caused it. You know, the government said it was uh, foreign sabotage, and uh, you know, independent uh, observers uh, said that it was just poor maintenance and brain drain of. Uh, a lot of engineers who are supposed to be taking care of the system, uh, they, they fled the country. Um, at any rate, uh, the effects were really uh, profound uh, inside of Venezuela. It was, uh, for the most part, out of power. The entire country um, was out of power for several days. Uh, it started slowly coming online in the bigger cities, uh, but it actually stayed offline or out of power in, on the countryside for weeks. Um, what I wanted to do uh, is look at the effects of the blackout on Bitcoin trading activity. Um, there is this awesome website called netblocks.org. It uh, basically tracks the active number of connections emanating from Venezuela IP addresses. Um, <clears throat> and so during the time of the blackout, uh, the number of active connections actually dropped substantially. Uh, I was able to take that data and pair it with, uh, you know, line up all the timing and such, pair it with the trading activity on local Bitcoins. And what I saw was that there was a massive transaction drop at the exact same time as the blackout. Um, this is probably what you would expect, uh, you know, during a massive blackout, obviously internet connections are all down and nobody's uh, allowed to trade Bitcoin online. Uh, at that time. Um, so that wasn't a surprise. The surprising part was that trading across all, virtually all Latin American currencies also dropped off significantly during the time of a blackout inside of Venezuela. And what that meant to me is uh, just on a very basic level uh, that these other countries or these other currencies uh, were in somehow, some way connected to the situation in Venezuela. Um, I've done a lot of interviews and talks and uh, uh, questioning and uh, of people both inside and outside of Venezuela uh, over the last few years. And <clears throat> so I generally had an idea of what this could be, but it was the first time that I actually saw um, hard data kind of showing what I thought might be happening. Um, and what was happening or what the blackout revealed was happening uh, was that mostly Venezuelan migrants, so the, the country has lost 10 to 15% of its population due to immigration over the last few years, uh, due to the declining economy. Um, <clears throat> they flee to other Latin American countries, whichever ones they can get to, uh, based on their previous social connections. Um, you know, if you're, if you're poor Venezuelan, you probably go to Colombia. Uh, maybe Peru, if you're uh, maybe more educated or you have kind of family connections, maybe you'll be able to make your way to Chile or Argentina, uh, places like that. Um, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, essentially, they've, they've fled the country. Um, they started earning uh, 
income in the new country currency. So if they fled to Colombia, they would get a job in Colombia earning Colombian pesos. And then they would uh, regularly, because their family's still back in uh, Venezuela, they would uh, purchase Bitcoin with those Colombian pesos. They would then, uh, so that would be a first transaction in what I characterize as like a two transaction process. So they would first uh, take the Colombian pesos that they earn, they would purchase Bitcoin. They would then uh, turn around and immediately enter into a second trade where they would sell that Bitcoin for somebody in Venezuela who is willing to send Venezuelan bolivars to their family member's bank account. Um, and so this is the reason why during the blackout in Venezuela, you saw also a massive drop off in other Latin American country transactions. It's because uh, this two transaction event requires communication with the person inside of Venezuela, which was severed at that time. Um, and so that is essentially uh, the conclusion that I came to. Um, and uh, it was really cool to see how the data showed what I had thought was happening uh, for years. Yeah, no, it was fascinating. And in that article you wrote, you have some great sort of, not flow charts, but great uh, diagrams of how these transactions work. And uh, you really highlight that Bitcoin's just being used as a rail to move money uh, between these countries, between these individuals, so that they can get access to the native currency like you just described. And Yeah, exactly. Um, and that is a point that I really did try to drive home in the article is that uh, in this situation, at least for the most part, Bitcoin is being used as a vehicle currency. And what that means is that uh, people are uh, trying to, um, they acquire Bitcoin just so that they can acquire yet another fiat currency. So they go from one fiat currency to another fiat currency in like this value uh, transfer process that, that crosses borders. Yeah, and it's, and again, going back to the different ways in which different people use Bitcoin, like here in the first world, a lot of people are using it as a speculative asset, maybe a savings vehicle. Um, but in Latin America, particularly, it's it's strictly or not strictly, but mainly a a a rail from which to move money. And um, so how how do you think this affected Venezuelans um, during the blackouts? Like, do you think they uh, had a harder time actually getting access to money and then getting goods from that? Like, was the blackout times like a particularly uh, uh, bad time for for economic activity within Venezuela too, as I would imagine? For sure, yeah. So as far as I understand, and um, obviously want to let everyone know, I, I am an American. I've never been to Venezuela, so... Uh, all of my um, knowledge on this is from people who do know Venezuela or who do live in Venezuela. But from what they told me, uh, yes, all activity stopped. It was honestly very similar to this pandemic where everybody stayed home, um, businesses stopped, uh, things of that nature. Um, an interesting thing that did happen during the blackout uh, was that because all of these electronic rails were down. And this even includes bank-to-bank uh, -bank payments inside of Venezuela. Um, despite uh, Venezuela being in a very uh, dire situation and behind the times in certain aspects, they do have mobile banking that is actually pretty uh, successful and efficient. So when people uh, make purchases at grocery stores and things like that, they are normally able to, to purchase goods with boulevards through their phone um, but even during the blackout, even that was down. And one of the kind of consequences of that was that people who were storing cash dollars um, under the mattress in Venezuela, during the time of the blackout, they kind of started using cash dollars because uh, that was something that actually worked. Uh, obviously, physical paper is always uh, available to use no matter if the power's on or off. Um, and so during that time, there was a, a large amount of, a large increase in the, in the amount of dollars changing hands openly in public. Whereas previously in Venezuela, um, at least historically, the, the government had cracked down on people using dollars, uh, especially in public. And they had a very negative view of dollars. 
Um, and so when the, when a blackout came around and they started using dollars again, the government didn't really uh, step in and punish them. And, and in fact, they had actually rela relaxed those anti-dollar laws in the previous fall, but it hadn't really kind of caught on yet with the public because in a country like Venezuela, when, when they change the laws uh, frequently and, um, and oftentimes even the laws are not enforced and uh, sometimes things that are not even a law are enforced. And so there was a lot of confusion uh, around if people could transact in dollars and get away with it. Um, and they found out during the time of the blackout that they could use dollars and get away with it and not be punished. And so afterwards, uh, Venezuela kind of moved on this trend of increased dollarization where it was more safe to use dollars in public. And so this is cash too. Are you noticing any more like stable coin usage? Are uh, hearing any anecdotes of that in Venezuela particularly? So if there is increased stablecoin usage, it's something that I would have a hard time seeing. Um, a lot of these stablecoin volumes, they're just aggregate numbers. You can't see which countries they're actually being used in. There are some peripheral ways you can uh, look into stablecoin activity. You can you know, look on Google Trends and see if uh, stablecoin related terms are trending higher in Google. You can go to the uh, stablecoin type of websites and you can uh, look at the Alexa statistics and see if they have a high percentage of transactions coming from Venezuela or high percentage of visitors, that is. Um, so I can't answer really the, the are they using stable coins on the ground? Um, they do use digital dollars and, and um, that digital dollars and, and we are entering a phase where the definition of stable coin versus digital dollar versus crypto dollar versus, you know, these are all kind of uh, competing terms for a class of ways that people are using money. Um, but inside Venezuela, it is um, getting more common to use um, uh, essentially uh, dollar apps where it's like a it's like an app in the United States that Venezuelans just happen to be using because they have some sort of uh, connection. You know, their cousin opened up a bank account in the U.S. a long time ago, so now they can use uh, Zelle application to to move money in Venezuela and things like that. Um, yeah, that's fascinating how creative people are getting, and that's one of my favorite parts of the the article. Uh, on Venezuela is like the different types of use cases. So you, you talked about Anyi, um, who's a, a documented Venezuelan migrant residing in Chile. She's making pesos and then using her Chilean bank account to buy Bitcoin on an exchange in Chile to then send uh, over local Bitcoins to a family member um, in Venezuela who can then liquidate that for pesos yep. into their Venezuelan bank account. And then you have Eduardo is working for Bitcoin in Argentina and he's able to send uh, deposit Bitcoin to a local Bitcoin account uh, owned by his family member in Venezuela who could then um, use that to, to liquidate into pesos and just a bunch of different unique use cases. And again, the creativity of, of how people are sort of scrambling to move money when the state and uh, governments have made it very hard to do so is, mm -hmm. is infinitely fascinating. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And that's why I do this stuff. It's, um, it's, it's, I feel like a detective when I'm finding this stuff out and, um, you know, every other week there's something, uh, crazy that I find that, that is just super interesting that I never thought about before. So it's, it's pretty neat. Yeah. And so another thing you found out through your research um, informally, anecdotally, you, you're finding that these money transmitters uh, average thousands of recorded trades on local bitcoins. Like, how much, how like active are these trans? Like, so people are obviously uh, trying to facilitate this movement. Like, how how active are these individual traders? I mean, a lot of them. It's their full time job. Um, they are professional informal money transmitters and that is their livelihood. I would say the majority of the, the traders on local Bitcoins, they are of that class. Um, 
And uh, because it, it really is, um, it is a bit complex to, to do this whole uh, process uh, efficiently. Uh, there are a lot of ways that you can make mistakes, you can uh, um, lose money through arbitrage, or you can um, uh, pay high fees and not realize it. You can get scammed without realizing it. So these people are professionals. And um, yeah, one of the things I noted in my article, and again, this is uh, the sum of, uh, I think it was five um, anecdotal um, accounts. And that is uh, the proportion of trades for these professional informal money trainer transmitters, the percentage of trades that they, of their total Bitcoin trades that they actually do on local Bitcoins is actually pretty small. Um, and so as in less than majority. Um, and so what that says to me is that, you know, in looking at the local Bitcoins data, we're only seeing a slice of the action. We're only seeing the tip of the iceberg in, in relation to the the total amount of impact that Bitcoin is having on Venezuela and other countries. Yeah, that's the crazy part. Local Bitcoins may only be the tip of the iceberg. They're using apps like WhatsApp, Telegram, Facebook groups to facilitate all this. Mm -hmm. um, it should be interesting to see if, if any of these apps prove to start censoring that activity. Uh, yeah, it, it will be like interesting to see. Um, it... it uh, I honestly think it's 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 this it is this game of cat and mouse and but the only problem is is that um, oftentimes the app that these groups are using it's an app from another country so it's very hard for Venezuela to stop this activity if it's an app that's made in the U.S. or if it's an app that's made in China uh, and then of course the Chinese and the Americans, they don't see as much of a problem with this taking place because it's not impacting their government. And in fact, it's probably helping their government in a way because it's um, increasing the network effects of these technology companies and uh, even their own currency and so, things like that. So um, yeah, it's it's this global game that that is being played and it's very difficult to stop. Yeah, and another interesting thing I keep saying interesting things. It's all very interesting. <laughs> but you also uh, sort of teased out that a lot of these money transmitters, ha having done thousands of trades, whether on local Bitcoins or via other apps, have really had a lot of touch points with Bitcoin, the network, and a lot of them are turning into long-term believers. What what were some of their their stories, uh, particularly around Bitcoin and, and their belief in, in Bitcoin as a network and a system moving forward? I mean, they... At the end of the day, they they understand Bitcoin or the proposition of Bitcoin better than almost anybody. And it's because they were born and raised in these terrible monetary environments. Um, it makes perfect sense to them. Uh, Andreas Antonopoulos has a really good quote. He said, um, you know, he travels around the world and gives uh, Bitcoin speeches everywhere. And he says, when I travel on the world, uh, all of the topic of all of my Bitcoin talks is um, why Bitcoin? And he said, but when I go to Argentina was his example. He said, when I went to Argentina, I didn't have to tell them why. I just told them how, because they already understood the why. Um, and so, yes, uh, even in writing both of the articles um, on Venezuela and Argentina, I was really trying to drive home the point that, it is a vehicle currency. It's not a store of value. Um, and a couple of them did interject and they said, hey, uh, yes, it is a vehicle currency, but uh, I do use it as a store of value and I do believe in it. And they, you know, to a certain extent, they insisted that I kind of put that in the article for a full picture because they really did believe in Bitcoin and they wanted it to be stated in the article. So, wow. It's uh, that's incredible, and it's thank you for doing this work. And again, going back to if you freaks haven't listened to our first episode, let's touch on uh the way Matt sort of finds this information is is truly detective work. It's like actually good journalism, which is hard to find these days. So, uh, for freaks who have not listened to our first episode, Matt, why don't we uh walk them through your process of sort of finding 
these traders and, and getting information out of them? Sure. Uh, yeah. So both local Bitcoins and Paxful, they, they do provide their trading data uh, through a public API. So you can connect into that and you can see which currencies are you know, showing a lot of trades and stuff like that. Um, so you can make basic volume charts uh, from that stuff. Um, additionally, on local Bitcoins and Paxful, mostly local Bitcoins, um, you can go into the actual advertisements of these uh, trade offers. And oftentimes these people will post their WhatsApp phone number or Telegram uh, number in the advertisement. And they'll say, hey, if you have any questions uh, about the, the trade or the trade terms or conditions or whatever, uh, call me up or text me and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get over the problem. And so I went through these ads and I started calling or I didn't call. I texted mostly um, uh, these people on local Bitcoins and Paxful. And I got them to kind of agree um, to open up about what they were doing. And then uh, later on, that did evolve into phone calls and video calls and things like that, where uh, they slowly kind of warmed up to what I was doing that they, they uh, kind of put their guard down a little bit and opened up to me to a certain degree about uh, how they do what they do and for what reasons and things like that. So yeah, uh, that is where I get my juiciest nuggets of information is uh, talking to these traders on, on the platforms. Are you having conversations in Spanish or are you finding a lot of them are bilingual? <laughs> so I, yeah, I don't speak Spanish. Um, I do have, through my network of contacts in Latin America, I have a lot of people that I know who have been able to uh, do Spanish interviews for me. So for the Venezuela article, for example, I had Alejandro Machado, which, who I think has been on the show before. Um, he was the one interviewing these uh, Venezuelan traders for me. I gave them a list of questions and Alejandro obviously knows what questions to ask as well. And so, yes, um, for the most part, I, I, I uh, do these in English. A lot of the times, um, these traders, they do tend, uh, at least to a certain degree, speak English. They, the, the traders on these platforms, they, uh, they do tend to be um, kind of a little bit more privileged in their society where they, they had some sort of experience where they were able to travel to another country at some point in their life. And that's why they have multiple bank accounts in multiple countries, which is a really good thing if you're a local Bitcoin trader, if you have access to different bank accounts and different currencies. Um, and so, yes, they did. A lot of them do speak English, but yes, it is a challenge. I, I do speak Chinese, um, but it's, you know, really rusty. I, I used to do it professionally. So I was able to talk to a couple of Chinese traders um, in Chinese, but aside that, Aside from that, uh, it's all in English. It's fascinating. No, and it's shout out to Alejandro uh, and the people around Bitcoin who are doing important work to to tease out this data, because that's what people wonder, right? Are people actually using Bitcoin outside of speculation? And it seems like they are. And I think this For is sure. a perfect time to. I think this For is a perfect time are. to. <laughs> I think this is a perfect time to transition to your article on Argentina because they've had um, all time high volume in us dollar equivalent uh, in the peso um, recently. And so they've had, you mentioned uh, Andreas Antonopoulos went to Argentina. Doesn't have to describe the why he has to describe the how to Argentinians or Argentines particularly because they've been through many, many uh, instances of hyperinflation and, capital controls throughout the last couple of decades. So, I mean, you did all the research and wrote a whole article on it. So what is going on in Argentina and how does it differ from Venezuela? Sure. Um, okay. So yeah, uh, Argentina has, um, they have seen a slow uptrend in volume, uh, even, uh, in the beginning since 2014, uh, they have seen an uptrend on local bitcoins since that time. Um, however, it has started uh, accelerating uh, as of last fall in particular. Um, and what happened last fall was that, um, so yeah, to give a little bit of uh, more basic background, Argentina has had struggles with hyperinflation over the last few decades. They've had a lot of economic, economic stagnation. 
they've had capital controls that have uh, come in and then they, they repeal them and then they put, place them back. So um, it is a constantly evolving situation in Argentina, um, but it has been struggling for many years. And uh, last fall, um, one of the more uh, economically free-minded uh, presidents in recent history by the name of Macri, uh, he lost an important uh, primary vote uh, in August of last year. And it's, uh, it was a very good indicator that he was going to lose the election to the opposing party. Uh, and the opposing party is more left-leaning and more in favor of capital controls and things of that nature. Um, and so uh, when that happened, um, the night of that primary vote, um, the Argentine peso, uh, once the results were out, the Argentine peso lost something like 25% of its value. Uh, overnight, the stock market crashed 40 or 50% in a single day. Um, it was a very big, it was a surprise result um, and a very impactful result. Um, and uh, a couple days after that, uh, the president, even though he was still in power, he was on his way out. He uh, did institute some new capital controls, the first capital controls in, I believe, uh, four or five years. Um, and then after that, uh, he added another new uh, set of capital controls a, a month later. Uh, two months after that, uh, the new party took power and they implemented even more capital controls. Um, and, and just so the, the, the viewer understands, uh, capital controls, essentially, there are laws based on what you can and cannot do with your money. They usually relate to transferring money in and out of the country. Um, many countries have capital controls and things of that nature. Um, but in Argentina, they are particularly uh, strong right now. Um, so, yeah, when you, when you start placing... Uh, rules on what people can and cannot do with their money, um, they start going around your rules. And Bitcoin is one of the ways that they have been doing it. And so we've been seeing increasing volumes uh, since that time. And before we get into the Bitcoin use uh, usage in Argentina, let's talk about the capital controls of the past and the development of the dollar markets within Argentina. So in 2001, you had an event known as the Coralito, where mm -hmm. the government froze people's dollar accounts and uh, basically forced them to uh, convert them to pesos overnight. They just uh, did that without asking anybody, without anybody being able to do anything about it. And so since then, you've seen uh, sort of informal markets, U.S. dollar markets specifically, uh, pop up in, in the form of Cuevas um which are which are uh the the money exchangers money transmitters on the black market within argentina so can you i just did a terrible job of describing that could you do a better job of describing no, how oh, yeah, you did, the dynamics you did of these markets good. uh you did pretty good um a couple of things i would add is that you know these uh black uh black market for dollars they have been around for uh longer than just last fall uh I believe in 2012 is when they really started ramping up. Um, and so they, uh, from 2012 until around 2015, 16, um, they were a very popular way. Uh, the way it works is that, uh, so in Argentina, you are allowed to hold US dollars in your Argentine bank account. Um, however, as I stated before, they have all sorts of rules that they apply to what you can do with those dollars in those accounts. Uh, they have all sorts of different fees, different taxes, different uh, limits, things like that, uh, which basically uh, vastly reduce the functionality of those dollars. And um, as a result, uh, so I'll give you one example. Uh, one of the capital controls that they placed uh, last fall was that um, uh, any one Argentine citizen is not allowed to convert more than $200 of their worth of their pesos into dollars per month. And so what that means is that um, if somebody in Argentina does want to get more than $200 per month in US dollars, they have to turn to these black markets. And uh, so the exchange rate that uh, is offered through the banking system is a different one that is offered on the black market. And it's a really good reflection of um, 
the difference uh, in value that pesos actually might have uh, in terms of their buying power for U.S. dollars. Um, so yeah, they 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 were very uh, they ramped up a lot and uh, were very common in from 2012 to around 2016. Then this new kind of open market type of president, uh, you could say at least relatively speaking, uh, in Argentine terms, he took power and so the, the black markets kind of abated for several years um, <clears throat> because you did have more freedom with what you could do in inside of the banking system there. Uh, but last fall, uh, it was reintroduced. Um, uh, the, the capital controls did start getting reintroduced and so you've seen uh, a huge uh, increase in the usage of these uh, black market cuevas, as well as uh, other avenues such as Bitcoin um, and things of that nature. Yeah, so let's get into the Bitcoin aspect. How how are Argentines using Bitcoin in these trying times as capital controls are ramping up? Sure. So, I mean, the way I see it and um, the way that I wrote it in the article is it, it for a lot of these uh, cuevas, it, it's becoming just another tool in their tool chest in uh, transferring money across borders. So these cuevas, oftentimes, uh, they'll you know it'll be in in uh, a low key place inside of some Argentine city, maybe somebody's apartment. Um, uh, they'll normally have you know cash on hand, both dollars and pesos, and then they also generally have. Uh, accounts open offshore uh, in banking accounts in different countries. Um, and so whenever a customer comes in and wants to do something with either their pesos or dollars, uh, they have this wide array of options uh, for moving money uh, around the world. And so Bitcoin is, uh, is becoming a part of one of the tools in their tool chest. Um, you know, if they, if they don't have a connection to a certain bank, for whatever reason, maybe Bitcoin can somehow help them to get a connection that way, or maybe they can uh, they can use stable coins in some way to uh, offset their risk in trading when they are tr uh, they have large cash flow of dollars on any given day. Maybe they want to offset that with uh, holding an account in in um, stable coins or things like that, just so that they can control their risk. Um, beyond that, I don't know a ton about how these cuevas are using Bitcoin. I talked to two different people who, who knew uh, a couple of people at these uh, cuevas and they told me that they, yes, they confirmed that they were using Bitcoin, but beyond that, I don't know the exact specificity of how they're using it. Um, that's something that I am trying to look into. Um, but aside from that, uh, aside from these money transmitters using uh, Bitcoin, um, they are also kind of, in fact, middlemen in this process. And so uh, that's where Bitcoin can kind of appeal to maybe a more retail user. Uh, they have to be a little bit technically sophisticated, of course, they have to understand Bitcoin and such. But um, Bitcoin can serve as a cueva of sorts for retail users in Argentina in that they can trade on these peer-to-peer -peer, peer -peer platforms. They can acquire Bitcoin and then they can uh, if they would like to, they can they can convert those Bitcoin into U.S. dollars um, by opening accounts uh, with American banks. Or uh, it is tricky sometimes to open accounts with American banks, but they can throw those Bitcoin into an exchange where they can acquire stable coins. Uh, they they can um, they might hold the Bitcoin themselves even if they do believe in Bitcoin. Uh, but yes, that that it, it's. Bitcoin is, is the, another option for them to use, uh, and it does find its use in different scenarios and situations. Yeah, I think you just answered the follow-up question I had to your description earlier of how Cuevas were using Bitcoin to get access to bank accounts. So you're saying that basically Bitcoin allows them to get exchange accounts that act as bank accounts or quasi-bank accounts? Yes, yes, that, that is uh, likely. It, it's also possible that there are uh, specific companies in the space that um, Argentines can open up uh, an account with. And I don't know if you want to call it a U.S. bank account, but um, they can, like, for example, they could move Bitcoin to Uphold. And Uphold, uh, and if they want to 
require US dollars on Uphold, they can do that and then Uphold will, if you give them a certain amount of Bitcoin, Uphold will put a certain amount of US dollars into their account and kind of hold it for you. Uh, so it's uh, things like that that are possible. Um, it, in the way that a lot of these kind of uh, very similar to Hawala networks, and it, it is a Hawala network in fact, um, it's this mixture of uh, all of these people have different connections in different countries based on you know their family history or business history or educational history. Um, and they leverage those accounts that they have in other countries uh, in order to kind of uh, open up uh, their ability to you know move money around the world and, and bitcoin is uh, one of those things that they can use to do that and so i i really love the end of this particular article because you had a somewhat of a call to action of how builders should be thinking about helping argentines and venezuelans out with bitcoin specifically so what do you think bitcoiners need to build to to sort of serve these markets better yeah, so I did. So uh, I am sponsored for a lot of my articles, and um, uh, Paxful has given me a sponsorship. And one of the things that they told me that they would like to learn is how can we serve the customer better. Um, so in doing my research, uh, I did think of a few things that uh, I felt were probably really good ideas, not only in Argentina, uh, but I do believe they would work well in Argentina. Uh, so I'll just go through, yeah, my uh, list here. Uh, number one, I, I think that um, uh, Bitcoin products, which make access to U.S. dollars uh, a lot easier, uh, those are winners um, because, as I said in in a lot of my research, um, as I've learned in a lot of my research, in many cases that is what people are desiring. It's it's they want to get their hands on U.S. dollars. Uh, or at least something stable. And, and there is kind of a difference in um, if you, not every dollar is the same. There are many different types of dollars in the world. There's physical dollars, there's digital dollars, there's dollars in bank accounts, there's dollars in online wallets, um, there's dollar derivatives, et cetera. So they all do different things and they all have different pros and cons. If for example, um, you made an app that simply uh, served where they used Bitcoin somehow uh, just to as a pure store of value. They wanted it to hold value. You would create some sort of dollar derivative uh, where you would deposit Bitcoin in and it would go into this kind of smart contract where it would guarantee you that uh, whenever you pull it out uh, five months later, you would get the equivalent amount of volume Vol, uh, value that you did when you uh, got your money back. Um, so that's a stable coin functionality, you could say. Uh, and that's good. And that is what a lot of people want. But sometimes this functionality is not, uh, it's not complete. Um, oftentimes people want US dollars or they want something stable, but they also want something which they can spend. And so if you gave them this uh, dollar derivative, for example, um, they can't take that dollar derivative to Netflix to buy a month subscription. They can't take that dollar derivative to buy goods online because these stores online don't accept these kind of, you know, complex instruments, right? They just want regular dollars in wallets that they understand. So uh, if you wanted something, a dollar that you could spend, maybe you could uh, get dollars in a PayPal wallet. PayPal's accepted in most places, so that's great. Uh, but then PayPal has its own limitations. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's um, uh, like I said, there's not every type of, uh, not every dollar is the same and not every, they, they rest in, in different places. And so these Bitcoin companies in the space, they need to acknowledge that um, that is the challenge that they have in front of them. And they, they have to make it not only hold value, but also be spendable for accepted in commerce. Um, Another avenue that I, I think is, is uh, shows a lot of hope and potential is uh, the ability for uh, citizens and emerging economies to engage in uh, investment markets uh, in the developed world. And so it, uh, a lot of people aren't aware of this, but if, you're, if you do live in Argentina, 
it's very difficult to buy Tesla stock or buy Microsoft stock and things of that nature um, because uh, obviously the Argentine government does not want capital leaving the country. They want to keep it trapped inside of their economy, um, but that it gets in the way of people's right to uh, you know, use their money the way that they want. So if, if people can make Bitcoin products that somehow um, allow people to invest in products all across the world, uh, that would also be a very good thing. Um, if, if Bitcoin companies can offer accounts that uh, bear interest in some form or another, you know, that, that would be great. It, most emerging markets in the world, they have currencies that devalue by, you know, four to 7% a year on average. And in the worst case, it's over 50%. So just think about if you could uh, have an, an interest bearing account that would gain 3% a year instead of losing 5% just by holding your own currency. That would be massive. Um, so yeah, there are many options. There are many opportunities out there. And I do see companies moving in, in that direction, uh, but they're going to have to do it really well. Yeah, and you you also said that there's a vibrant like Bitcoin development community down in Argentina specifically. Um, so are, are these companies moving to solve these use cases, or are they sort of heads in the ground just trying to get people access to to Bitcoin in the first place? No, their their heads are not in the sand. Um, uh, not in the sand. <laughs> like they're nose to the ground, working hard. To, oh, nose to the ground. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, I think they are. Um, uh, even after I published this article, a couple people reached out to me and told me like, hey, you missed another, uh, a big thing in Argentina, which is that, you know, there's a lot of die trading taking place, uh, you know, make or Dow die. And um, that is actually uh, pretty popular in, in Argentina. And, and um, there are not only exchanges in the space, but I, I think make or Dow is down there doing work. Um, so, uh, yeah, they're definitely... Uh, trying to innovate in the space. Um, and when I say uh, vibrant community, crypto community down there, that is true, but um, it also presents another opportunity in, in um, uh, paying salaries to these uh, developers, uh, even if they're not working inside of Bitcoin, just any remote software developer um, would probably prefer, uh, would very likely prefer getting paid informally uh, in Argentina. What, what, what I mean by that is if, if they would much prefer you transfer either cryptocurrency or some online dollar, uh, they would rather be paid in that than some, uh, like if they're working for an American company, for example, the traditional channel would be the American company would do a wire transfer, uh, you know, converting US dollars into Argentine pesos through the banking system there that would be extremely inefficient uh, way to pay a software developer. Uh, and so the entire freelancing software development market down there, uh, I think there's a huge opportunity if you can find some sort of payment solution or salary solution that involves you know, paying them informally. <clears throat> and and it, it's already taking place. They already do because they're very creative. They already do get paid informally in, in many cases. Um, but if you could find a, a really user-friendly way to do it or a very easy way to do it, that would be a big winner. Well, it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong here, something like BTC Pay Server with uh, Liquid integrated and then Liquid Tether integrated as well, maybe sort of the uh, yes. base building blocks or something like this, right? There, the, Yes, Um there are many options out there in, in terms of building something like this up. Uh, just with everything, uh, you need that first trickle of network effects. You need to capitalize on something that um, is already happening a little bit and, and so it can start snowballing. Because that's the one thing I've, I've seen in crypto is there are a million good ideas and there are a million good products out there. It's just that they many of them lack the network effects to really get the snowball rolling. And so those companies that in some way they can get some sort of magic to get that ball rolling where it snowballs, that's, that's where, you know, the big payoff is. So yes, the, the solution you offered is, uh, it's definitely up there. Um, 
if somebody wants to, to start working on that, uh, go for it because it, it is there for the taking. Yeah. And the best part about BTC pay server is it's open source. So anybody who wants to contribute on to work for a company can start contributing to that. Uh, but like everything in Bitcoin, it's just, it's going to take time. Right. And so I guess that's a good transitionary question here is, is, are you impressed or, um, sort of, uh, uh, disappointed with the state of uh, the protocol of Bitcoin and the products that are being built on top of and around it. You think uh, development pace is, is going well right now? I think so. Um, like you said, it all takes time and it takes time to build network effects as well. And so, no, I'm not, I'm not disappointed. I'm not, um, I think there's, uh, I said this in your last uh, podcast, there's an a huge co concentration of smart people working in this space. And uh, uh, there are a ton of ambitious people working in this space. So I, I really don't uh, have any problems with, with um, the way that they're going at it or the pace. Uh, you know, it does take time to change the world. Uh, if there's one thing, you know, I would recommend is just, um, and I'm not saying that these companies are not doing that, but um, some of them maybe could do a little bit better is just, you know, uh, get yourself out there in your, in your prospective customer community. Uh, you, you need to be talking. If you're, if you're, uh, marketing a product in a particular country, obviously you need to start talking to the users and understanding the market. Um, I had, uh, I had a company call me up and they, they wanted my opinion, um, on a product that they were building. And, um, they uh, they were building it, building something that I, I felt like, and they had been working on it for like a year and a half, two years. It seemed like they, they were uh, seemed like there were a lot of resources that went into the product. Um, and I just talked to them for about an hour. They told me of the product. Um, it sounded really slick, and but it just the way that they were building it, it did not make sense from my perspective for the users that they were going after. Um, you know, so I think, like I said, they need to, they need to talk to their customers first before they start building the product. Yeah. Solutions looking for problems is never a, never a good product roadmap. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, going back to adoption again, you tweeted out about Kenya this morning, a nice little short tweet thread uh, about Kenya's P2P Bitcoin activity. And it seems to be exploding as well. So this is very um, bullish in my mind. What, what are you seeing there? Yeah. So I would love to do a uh, more extensive research on Kenya. I know quite a few things already. Um, but, uh, I don't have a polished enough, heavily researched enough opinion to really declare what I think is happening there. But, um, having said that, I think in a very general sense, um, what's happening in Kenya is the same thing that's happening in all of these other countries that are seeing exploding adoption. And that is that they are local governments um, are not uh, compatible in a global world where a lot of these small and medium businesses, um, they are talking to companies all across the world. They're doing business with these, with different companies all across the world. Um, and, and it's not just small and medium businesses. It's a ton of uh, retail uh, interest as well, maybe majority retail interest. But um, uh, what I'm saying though is that the local laws are not ready to communicate with an international market. And so uh, if you want to do business in a lot of these countries, uh, it's a ton of bureaucracy, it's a ton of limitations, uh, and it is also a ton of uh, maybe a, a dash of oppression in that the government uh, is acting in the government's interest instead of in the interest of the people with the way that it crafts these laws. Um, and oftentimes they do favor the big multinational corporations who they do have the budget to pay for these lawyer fees to get these permissions to do business uh, on a multinational level. But um, uh, that is what I would suspect is happening in Kenya just as it is happening in every hot Bitcoin market right now in, in emerging economies. It's this, people are turning to Bitcoin 
because they uh, have a ton of uh, bureaucratic uh, friction um, and they don't want to deal with it. So, yeah, I mean, the numbers, the US dollar equivalent numbers in, in volume there, are pretty stunning. 11% growth week on week from this week to last week. So, it seems like something's happening. Do you think? And that's, ooh, so that's the one question I, I had in my mind uh, earlier and forgot about it now, it just resurfaced. Do you think the usage of Bitcoin, how Bitcoin is used in these areas, changes in a bull market? Uh, like if we're about to, um, if we're about to turn into a bull market, do you think uh, more and more users within these countries begin to speculate more and the, the sort of, uh, percentage of overall use between use cases shifts a bit. Absolutely, that um, I'm sure that happens, and uh, I'm sure it will happen if a bull market takes place. You will see, just as you do in the U.S., you will see a bunch of people who want to speculate on the Bitcoin price, and even in Kenya, uh, in, in every country this takes place. But in Kenya, in particular, there are even aside from just you know Bitcoin speculation, there are all sorts of these. Uh, Bitcoin-related Ponzi schemes that people get tricked into investing to. And that, I cannot deny, is probably also a, a pretty large component of the volume in Kenya as well. There, there's one that I saw uh, uh, in the recent months. It's called Bitcoin Loophole is what it's called. And um, basically, it's, you know, you so you acquire Bitcoin and then you throw it into this uh, I don't know exactly how it works, but you throw it into this website or this piece of software that supposedly trades Bitcoin for you and like, you know, pro guarantees profits and all that stuff. And so, yes, um, that stuff is ever present, um, but it is uh, it that type of stuff also strengthens during bull markets as well. And a lot of people get swindled. And so that there's definitely a downside to a lot of this stuff to do. Yeah, another plus token, another one coin. Yep. God damn. It's uh, I wish there were ways to reach out to these traders maybe via local bitcoins or Paxful. You think they'd ever like put up warnings on their sites like probably stay away from these types of activities. They they don't tend to Boy, end up good. I think that'd be a great idea. Um yeah, maybe I'll I'll I'll, I'll mention that to them. Um Yeah. I think that would be a terrific idea, um, you know, but there, there really is a lot of these types of things that happen. And, and honestly, at the end of the day, um, people do want to gamble no matter where they are in the world or what socioeconomic class they're in, and no matter how many warnings you give them, um, they, they see, you know, they see potential or they see something uh, and they want to throw their money at it. And so it's, you know, at the end of the day, it is hard to stop. All you can do is hope that, um, uh, you know, they, even if they do get scammed, they, they learn a lesson from it and they become a better person and a more responsible person. And uh, that's kind of one of the things that I, um, I think is good about Bitcoin is that it does teach you, you are in control of your money uh, you need to be responsible for your private keys. You need to be responsible for what you do with your with your money. If you lose your money in any way, shape, or form, it's not anybody else's fault. It's your fault. And I think Bitcoin is a very good teacher of, you know, you are in control of your life. <clears throat> I completely agree. And you learn quick, especially if you mess up during a bull market and you lose your sats due to one of these scams or some other type of uh, exchange exit scam or something like that you only have to learn that lesson once like damn look at look at what i missed up missed out on on the upside yeah because i i wasn't taking care of this stuff which yep. maybe in the long run is more beneficial to learn lessons quickly then yeah um, it, it's so it's a harsh take for sure um but i've seen it happen several times I, I remember one one tweet in particular where some bitcoin critic uh published you know, some uh, 21 year old in the U.S. He he said, "Well, I, I, uh, I, I bet all my savings on I forget what coin it was, but turned out to be an exit scam, or, or I think he got liquidated on Bitmax is what happened. Um, and it was this like 21 year old's account. I think he posted it on Reddit, which a critic then uploaded to Twitter. 
but he was talking about, he said, yeah, all my savings are gone, but it's like, well, you're 21 years old and you live in the U S and like the, the kid had even mentioned, like he was still like, you know, he still had this like summer uh, internship that he's doing. It's like, you have a lot of good things going in your life. This will be a very small road bump. And I, it probably has taught you a lot. Um, I think I, I, I tweeted back something like, you know, this will make him read the fine print and whatever mortgage he signs in the future, because uh, at the end of the day that it, it's a good lesson for him. And so, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm just from my own story. I was one, of, I was that 21 year old at one point learning those hard lessons. Um, no, it's important. Like you said, uh, this is, Always, always fascinating to sit down and shoot the shit with you, Matt. Uh, before we wrap up here, I know you're writing something on India right now. You don't want to disclose too much to sort of uh, ruin the the uh, the launch of, of your article. But what can you tell us about what you're seeing there and, and what you're working on? Sure. Uh, yeah. So um, what I'm discovering is that no matter what country I look at, a lot of these principles apply globally. But what I am seeing in India, and, and, and this actually does relate to a, a tweet that I saw in the last couple of nights, it's going to, um, uh, somebody came out and said, uh, you know, Bitcoin is, is only for the rich right now. And uh, Alex Gladstein, I'm not sure if he's been on the show before, but, but he's, uh, works for been, human rights yeah, Foundation. he's been on a couple of uh, times. Okay. Yeah. So he, he, uh, made a good rebuttal about this, you know, person living in a uh, rich city in, in North America. I don't know where he's from, but he said, you have a very U.S. centric view of Bitcoin and it's because, you know, that's what Bitcoin is and in the developed world, but in the developing world, it's, it's much different and people do use it and the lower classes do use it and people um, do use it for, um, the disadvantaged do use it a lot and it is helping people. And so for my indie article, I'm going to dive into um, this thing that I call uh, digital microservices. And that is um, a lot of people with very little means in their life. They are working online and they're getting paid, you know, 25, 50, 75 cents an hour. Uh, and they are earning money online, earning Bitcoin online, and cashing it out on these peer-to-peer -peer exchanges, uh, earning you know five bucks a week, something like that, and it is making a big difference in their life. Um, and that is oftentimes um, their livelihood is is working for this for these various websites. I, I'll dive in more in the article, and I'll show uh, that this there are thousands, tens of thousands of people who are subsisting off of this way of living. Um, and it is a great rebuttal to somebody in the West who thinks that it is only for rich people. Ah, uh, that's great to hear. Um, no, because I, it is a, that is a common meme out there and it's, it's great to hear that that is Bitcoin is serving, uh, more than just the rich. And it's not to say it's a bad thing that it's serving the rich, but, uh, it should be serving whoever needs it for whatever reason and the research that you're doing particularly seems to be proving that out. Um, so again, Matt, I want to thank you for all the hard work you do and legitimately like hard detective, good, I don't want to call you a journalist and paint you with that picture, but actually good research that, <laughs> that's a word now. That tell, it's, it's a pejorative, uh, good research that's, uh, helping people better understand Bitcoin, how it's being used. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And thank you for shedding light on this stuff. And um, yeah, it's, it has been a pleasure for me to, to research this stuff. And um, I hope I, I, I don't get things wrong. I hope that I, um, I try my best not to be a, a Bitcoin shill too much. I try to show, prove that uh, these things that I say are happening are actually happening and I try to show supporting data. So um yeah, I, I hope uh, that is coming through. And um, yeah, where I think it's definitely coming through. Um, but where can the freaks find out more about what you're doing? How can they help? Uh, what What do you want 
to get out there before we wrap up here about how we can find you and help you out? Sure. So uh, I, I have a website. It's called usefultulips.org. Um, if you go there, you can, that's kind of the nexus of all of the work that I do. So once you get there, you, on the homepage, you'll see articles, all the articles that I've ever written. Um, you'll see links to those articles. That is, you'll also see some kind of select tweets that I've tweeted about before. Um, I'm on Twitter and at Matt Alborg. Um, and, uh, the biggest thing about the website is you can actually, um, uh, open up different tabs and see volume uh, trends in different currencies all around the world. I think it has like some between 100 and 150 different currencies that Bitcoin is trading in on local Bitcoins and Paxful. Um, so you can go in there and, and look at the volume trends yourself. I also have additional data layers and stuff like that. So um, yeah, and, and uh, last request would be if, if you are a person using Bitcoin for utility reasons, then reach out to me and tell me uh, what you're doing with it. And uh, I will, um, I'm a nice guy. I'm not going to publish anything that you don't want to be seen. Um, I, on, I have honored that in the past but with people who've talked to me. Um, also tell me if I'm wrong, if, if you, uh, if I publish anything that you disagree with. So I, I won't be afraid to publish that stuff either. Um, so yeah, that's it. Bang, bang. Again, Matt, thank you for all the work that you're doing. I think it's incredibly important and is beneficial for Bitcoin in the long run. Um, thank you for your time this afternoon. Always a pleasure sitting down and speaking with you. Thanks, Marty. Appreciate it. All right, that's all we got this week, freaks. Peace and love.